Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Bruce Mowday, author of Lafayette at Brandywine. Bruce Mowdy is the author of Lafayette at Brandywine, The Making of an American Hero. How well do you think Lafayette's deeds during the Revolution are known among Americans today? It's still, first, thank you so much for having me back. It's always enjoyable to be up here and talking about books and history. Lafayette, you know, I found that everybody or most people know Lafayette. They know the name. So many towns named Lafayette and streets and, you know, the name uh, University here in Pennsylvania, Lafayette. But do they know who Lafayette was, why he got all this recognition? I found as I've gone around and given, uh, you know, talks about the books that they, many people just do not know who he was and how much he was responsible for us winning our freedom back in, in the American Revolution. So uh, I was really pleased to do this book and get out and talk about Lafayette and the great American hero. Is he remembered differently in France than in the United States? Ah, that's a great um, question because it's amazing. I, I think people sit down in the United States, look at Lafayette, look at what he did. They know he's an American hero. In France, he's not so much a hero. Um, sometimes he's called the hero of two worlds. I think he's a hero of one world and some people in the other world. As in France, um, they had what, of course, the, the French Revolution, and Lafayette did not fare so well. Uh, matter of fact, members of his wife's family were put to the guillotine. Lafayette was imprisoned, and uh, a lot of people were not real happy with what he did during that French Revolution. So he's a little bit of a tarnished star in, in his home France. Uh, talk a little bit about the cover of the book. Uh, it was uh, made by artist Adrian Martinez. Adrian Martinez is a great painter, artist. He does a lot of historical uh, events and series. He did one on Humphrey Marshall, a great botanist. And uh, I've known Adrian for a number of years, and I was telling him I was researching and writing the book on Lafayette. And he said, you know, I'm thinking about doing a series of painting on the American Revolution battle at Brandywine. And Brandywine is where Lafayette was indeed, where he was wounded. And he was thinking about doing a painting independently of Brandywine. And he said, maybe it'll work for your cover. I said, maybe it will. So uh, one day early in COVID, we uh, got together and walked around the field where Lafayette was wounded. And we had a chance to look over the field and the terrain. And I could point out where you know, generally where we think Lafayette uh, received his leg wound and we looked around over our shoulders and see the hills where the British were advancing very quickly on Lafayette. It was just so inspiring for me for the book, but also for Adrian and the painting. And um, that's the field that he did. And Adrian went around trying to get some good sketches and looks at Lafayette and he was having a little bit of problem and I said, you know, I know the person who does a great impersonation of Lafayette, 
and uh, he was actually at one of the reenactments of Brandywine a few years before, and I talked with him, and I hooked him up with, um, with Adrian, and Adrian used him as a model. And actually, the reenactor uh, said that he was told as a young man he indeed looked a little bit about Lafayette. It, people should not look at that cover as a historical interpretation because Lafayette had just turned 20 years old when uh, the Battle of the Brandywine took place. And if you take a look at the painting, the, the face of Lafayette as an older uh, man, and um, talking with Adrian about the painting, you know, you'll kind of laugh and I'll, I'll show different aspects also of the other painting. But was it an older Lafayette looking back at Brandywine and its American experiences? I think that's where Adrian was going. So uh, it, it's a great painting, uh, especially if you see it without the title on the top of it, the original painting. It's uh, Adrian did another just great job. You seem to have interesting relationships with artists. You were previously on this show with Carl Kerner about a book that you both did on the Battle of Gettysburg. Yes, and um, I think we've done something with the Stealing Wyeth book, the, the true crime book. Uh, and I have a lot of artist friends. Another artist um, that did a cover for my book, and she, she's a great uh, painter. And I just like the artist spirits, and I've talked a lot with them. And, you know, they go through the same things basically as an author does, that where do you get your inspiration, how do you stick with it, how do you deal with the criticism, and, you know, what it takes to really sit there and be dedicated to your art. And I've always enjoyed the, the company of artists. Well, let's go back to uh, Lafayette's early years. Who were his parents? Where did he grow up? He, uh, of course, was born in France outside of uh, Paris, uh, family estate. And he was, or, or his dad died when he was two years old. His dad was a officer in the French army. Uh, the Seven Years' War was going on, and uh, he was killed in the Battle of Minden. When, when Lafayette was only uh, two years old. Uh, both his mother and father had fairly large estates, pretty well, well to do. And uh, when, after his father died, his mother took care of Lafayette along with, especially with his grandmother and some other family members. And there was a lot of uh, female influences in his life, which I think you can see come through. And there was a great influence. And, and Lafayette had great respect for the women in his life. Um, his mother lived a lot in Paris. Uh, Lafayette was with his grandmother a lot in the suburbs. Mother died when she, if I remember, at 33, so she died fairly young, and that left uh, Lafayette at the ripe old age of 13 as one of the most wealthiest men in France. And indeed, he, you know, he just, he had money, he had connections to the court, um, he became engaged through an arranged marriage with uh, his future wife, uh, Adrienne. And uh, it was kind of interesting that he became a musketeer. His family had a lot of military background. He really wanted to become a, a person that his family would be proud of and carry on the military tradition. Um, received through his father-in-law a commission in one of the prestigious regiments in the French army. Never fought for the French army, but indeed did. And uh, so he had all this military uh, training as a young man, even, you know, he was still in his teens. They say in the book that uh, it was at a posting in Metz that he became kind of 
ignited with the passions of the American Revolution. What happened? How did he discover those beliefs? He, he was uh, he was paced, he was posted to Metz, and his commanding officer invited him to a dinner. And this was also the beginning of his, he he was a Mason, and this is where the, the Mason uh, roots really kind of took place. And um, the brother of the King of England happened to be there and a guest for dinner. Uh, the Seven Years' War was over. Uh, France had lost to Britain, uh, so they had an uneasy relationship. And the uh, troubles in the colonies, put it that way, the troubles in the colonies had just really kind of begun. And the brother was not happy with what his brother was treating the colonies. And he was also wasn't happy that his brother wouldn't allow him to become a soldier in the British Army. And he was talking a little bit about the roots and what was happening and the causes. And this just really inspired Lafayette and went right to the base of his feelings about uh, people being free and they should have their own choices and individual liberties. And it really struck him that he wanted to do something and he thought this is the way not only America but France and the world should be with the individual freedom. So it was actually the, the conversation with the brother's king that kind of set his mind that he was going to help us out and gain our freedom. You mentioned that he was a Mason. What did what did it mean to be part of Freemasonry at that time? At that time, the Masonry was very much dedicated to helping the common man. Of course, it came through some religious connections. Um, we think of it a lot today, a semi-secret society, and it kind of goes back and forth, is it secret or not, and what they're supposed to do. But it's, you know, it's basically a brotherhood that was dedicated to helping people and helping each each other if, if you were a Mason. And that, that was pretty much it. I, I don't think there was the nefarious connections that you sometimes hear today about it. Did being a Mason help him later when he went to the colonies? So people like George Washington were Masons, right? Absolutely. Yeah, there were so many Masons involved in, in our founding fathers, and this really did help him get uh, accepted because uh, he let people know and people let you know, others know that, that indeed this young gentleman who was very you know, proud, military, and very rich was a Mason, and indeed that was one of his connections that got him started. When did he decide that to take the step to come across the Atlantic and join the, the American Revolutionary Cause? It was within a year or so of that uh, dinner that we talked about that he really got in his head he wanted to go. He knew enough not to talk to his father-in-law or the king ab about his plans, because it was kind of interesting that France was really secretly rooting for us to beat up on Great Britain because England had defeated them in the Seven Years' War, and France, in the back of their mind, and the leaders said, maybe we can get back some of that territory if the colonists defeat England. Um, so they were secretly rooting for us, but also they've just went through this very destructive and draining of their coffers, of the tax dollars, uh, fighting England, and they did not want to get another full-fledged fight with England at that point. So they were doing some things behind the scenes to get us some support, some weapons, some clothing, and but they weren't out front because they, they didn't want to enrage the British again. Um, the, uh, we had several representatives over there, including Silas Dean, and Silas was there to try to get aid from the French, 
and also to recruit some military leaders that could help our army. Silas's problem was that he was not discerning at all. And just about anybody that came through got a commission, which later on caused a problem for Lafayette. Um, Dean at one point uh, introduced him to Baron von, um, to DeKalb, DeKalb. And DeKalb uh, spent most of his life in France, uh, had come over to the U.S. during the French and Indian War, uh, so he was familiar with the United States and England and English, and put him together with Lafayette. And DeKalb uh, became fairly good friends and fought most of the revolution with uh, Lafayette. Lafayette had decided to come over. There was uh, about a dozen or so French officers that were ready to come over and they had made plans. Well, the plans were leaked back to Lafayette's father-in-law and the king, and the king says, don't go. Don't even think about it as father-in-law. Lafayette was very much, he was gonna go no matter what. He had the money, he bought his own ship eventually, and when the king found out what was going on, he sent his troops out actually to arrest Lafayette. So Lafayette had literally to escape from France to come over and help us. Uh, how much of a risk was he taking in defying the king like that? Uh, well, a lot, and he thought about it a lot before he returned the first time. You know, he could have been thrown into the dungeon. He could have been executed. You just didn't go against what the king said, uh, you know, he was the supreme ruler. And, you know, his father-in-law was his father-in-law who was a very prestigious man and a military man in his own right. So, you know, he was risking life, fortune to, to come over here, you know, and his own personal liberty. So, and he thought about that a lot. What he also didn't do before he left, he uh, forgot to tell his wife, Adrienne, that he was going. And Adrian was, uh, you know, three years younger than he was, and he was 19, and, and they already had one child. And uh, he finally uh, sat down and wrote a letter when he was in the middle of the Atlantic uh, back to Adrian explaining what he did and why he did it. And uh, when I was doing, doing the research, there's a lot of great letters back and forth and uh, written in the, you know, the 18th century flourish and wording that sometimes will stop today's readers. So I was very careful of what I used and how much and, and you know, keeping the context the same. But there was this, this is the one letter that I quoted extensively from. And it just showed a lot about Lafayette and his character and his relationship with his wife that he must have asked for forgiveness like five or six times. Um, you know, he had to do it. There was a reason to this. Do you still love me? And, and he just kind of went on and on. And it was, it was really kind of a, a, a young man who had second thoughts, obviously, about going. And he, he wanted to tell his wife why. Now, given that he was fired by this idealism and but had never been to the colonies, yeah. when he arrived, uh, what did he see and, and did that change his idealism in any way? Um, no, he never really lost his idealism. The, there was one issue, and we can talk about it a little bit later, you know, it was the slavery issue and he was always just totally against slavery. And at one point he supposedly told somebody if he knew that the U.S. was so ingrained in the slavery, he might never have, have helped us. And, and he did a lot of things during his life to try to end slavery. Um, 
there was one during the French Revolution when he was after we had won our uh, freedom, he had actually bought a couple plantations in the Indies, and uh, he um, didn't set the slaves free, but he set up education, he paid them wages, and he set in motion their freedom. But when he ran afoul of the French Revolution, his lands were taken away, and sadly they were put back into chains and to slavery. But when he got to the United States and uh, ended up in South Carolina, um, set foot on the United States, and, and he was a great letter writer, and he wrote another letter. Now, these letters were not delivered for a number of months and months and months because there wasn't postal system or you had to find somebody to take the letters back across the sea and then you know it was just months to get them across and get the answers but he's writing his wife and saying just what a wonderful place this country is how beautiful it is and how everybody loves each other and how everybody's so friendly and um, as I pointed out in my book I was a little premature on, on you know, what he thought about the United States because if you ask the American Indians or the slaves they would probably not be as happy as, as some of the people he interacted with but he had this great love of the United States and our freedom throughout his life and uh, that never wavered. So did, how did he square his really deep friendship with somebody like George Washington with his beliefs uh, opposing slavery. Washington, Jefferson, and others, um, you know, later on, uh, Washington almost became like a father to him, and that's been said many times, and I think if you really look at the relationship, that that's pretty close. And he, a number of times, just urged Washington just, you know, release the slaves. That's the best thing. He did it with, with Jefferson, and, and the correspondence back, and when they talked with each other, was pretty much, you're right, Lafayette, we should do so. And then they had three excuse, excuses why they couldn't do it at that point, and, and of course they, they never did. Um, but there were so many other things and factors and freedoms and admiration for what they every, everybody else stood for that and he didn't let the one issue stand in the way even though he was not happy with it. He was also friends with Henry Lauren. Yes. And he, he was a major slave owner and a slave trader. Absolutely, and Lawrence friend, or Sonny uh, Lafayette, no, yeah, he was one of the major slave owners um, in the United States. Uh, on his way from South Carolina to Philadelphia, um, Lawrence's son um, thought that they'd do him a favor and actually buy him a slave for his use, and there's a writ in the Maryland Historical Society that had it. Lafayette had no part of the dealing, I was not even sure if anybody knew what it, if he even knew what happened, and there's notation on the back, and there's a brief mention of uh, of the slave, but that that was all. Um, you know, again, it was what was going on, uh, were you interested in, you know, the, the American-style freedom to, you know, to defeat Great Britain? He had not, you know, hatred of Great Britain. I don't think that's too strong of a word. And it, of course, goes back to when his father was was killed in the, in the battle when he was two years old. So he arrives in Philadelphia, and what does he do? What, what does a young Frenchman on the make do when they arrive in Philadelphia? Well, he arrived with uh, what he thought was a pass to become a commanding general in George Washington's army. 
Um, he used part of his fortune to get to Philadelphia. He, you know, he had a few of the French officers with him that made the trip over, and they had to go from South Carolina to uh, Philadelphia, and not the greatest of roads, and he bought these carriages that immediately broke down, and he had to buy additional horses. He was always caring and feeding and clothing his men, which cost a lot of money. He gets to Philadelphia at the end of July, and he, he goes to Independence Hall and knocks on the door and basically said, here I am, I'm your new general. I have this commission from Dean. And they basically said, go home, young boy, go home. We don't want you. And you can imagine if you were to just turn tail and went back home, our country's history being a lot, lot different. Why they told him that was a few months before George Washington contacted Congress and said he didn't want any more political generals from Europe. They were expensive. They charged exorbitant fees to be officers. They weren't that good. And they didn't speak the language. There were communications problems. And they were not good. They had no pool to uh, recruit officers from, from the local uh, you know, states. So he said, no more, they're not worth it. So after this edict from Washington comes in, in comes Lafayette, who fit the bill that would let Washington didn't want it. He said, no. Um, DeKalb was ready to turn around and go home. Uh, Lafayette said, well, let's just give it a little bit more time. He went back several times to talk with the congressman. Um, he made one forceful talk, said, look, look what I've given up. I've given up part of my fortune. I've left my young wife and child at home. I risked the wrath of the king. You've you got to give me a chance. And also, um, he received some help from people like Ben Franklin. And Franklin said to Congress, hey, you better give this guy a commission. He's well thought of in France, and he's rich. Maybe the rich part played a little bit more than the well connection. We need money. We're broke. We need all the help we can get. And uh, Congress talked with Washington in exchange is kind of interesting. Washington kind of agreed if it was an honorary commission, like um, a little boy, go get your uniform, stand over there, and we'll fight the war. Uh, that was not what Lafayette had in mind at all. He said, I want to fight. I want to take part. I'm ready to do it, and I want to command. So Washington was back and forth w with Congress, and Congress finally said, he's your problem now. You know, you've you got to deal with him. Uh, in all, that was August of uh, 1777, and the relationship between Lafayette and Washington, and Washington began to grow. And as I said, I, I think there really was that element of a father-son relationship there. Uh, Washington put him on his staff, told him he could stay with him um, as the war progressed. He was in Philadelphia when that great parade of uh, the American troops through Philadelphia that, you know, they weren't really properly closed, but they had great spirit. And Lafayette talked about being there. And uh, one word came that uh, General Howe and the British had left New York City with this humongous armada. And uh, they, nobody was quite sure. E even Howe's officers weren't quite sure where they were going. There was... Philadelphia was probably the main target, which it turned out to be, but uh, some people thought and probably he should have been going to, up to New York to be with General Burgoyne, who lost 
uh, two weeks after the Battle of Brandywine, or he could be going down south to help uh, shore up the, the British influence in the southern states. But the word finally came that they knew where uh, Hal was going, and he came up to the, the Delaware and couldn't quite go up there, so he went up to Chesapeake and landed at the head of the Elk. And Lafayette was with Washington doing some of the scouting um, during that period and um, when they started to look for a place to defend Philadelphia and they picked the Brandywine River. So after the British landed, there, there was a battle at Cooch's Bridge. Mm -hmm. uh, and following that, uh, George Washington had a council of war, but you mentioned in the book that Lafayette was kind of disappointed in that. What, what, what was going on there? Yeah, he, he um, just, uh, he, he was disappointed in, in the preparations, how they did it. He was disappointed that the Americans didn't fight the British and contest the landing at the head of the Elk and just kind of let the British to kind of come off. Um, he, the whole organization, I, I think uh, this was not the way they did it in France and the European armies, so he knew there were some issues. He, um, during the, the one talk when they were outside of Cooch's Bridge uh, at the Haleburn House, he celebrated his 20th birthday, and that was just a few days before the Battle of Brandywine. So he, he knew this was a different game. He knew these were citizen soldiers that probably needed some uh, European polish to make them into fighting men. The uh, Cooch's Bridge, and that was the only uh, battle in, in Delaware during the American Revolution. Um, again, the Americans escaped because there was a swamp and there was no follow-up, and it was General Maxwell was there who had just gotten together the American Life, Light Infantry. The um, Brandywine was selected, uh, I think, partly on false information or faulty information. I had always heard when I was doing my first book on the Battle of Brandywine, the September 11th, 1777 book, that there was a council or there was a meeting with some local citizens who told Washington you only need to defend the fords about three fords up, which was present day uh, basically around Lenape, and the British couldn't get across the river and you don't have to worry of being outflanked on your right side. Um, I'm not, I could never find who was at that meeting. I'm not sure if there was local people. Uh, during this period also, uh, Washington's cartographer did a very rough match, a map of the, the area, and on that rough map, he only had like three fords noted, and there, there was a, more, a few more than that, and some use, utilized by the British. So I'm thinking maybe he re really relied on that map to set up his defense, which uh, proved to be uh, faulty. If you go to the Brandywine today, uh, a lot of people say that's not a river. That's a, you know, it's a creek. That's this. That's that. During the the fighting in that September, there, it was part of a rainy season. The water was up to a man's waist. Uh, it was wider than what it is today, and it would wouldn't have stopped uh, the British Army coming across, but it certainly would have slowed them down. This battle was very unusual because Washington really didn't want to do a full-out defense of Philadelphia, the nation's capital. You know, he would have rather continued kind of sniping at the at the uh, British and keeping them on the run, whether a, without a full confrontation of both battles and a major battle. But he really didn't have any choice. Congress was f 
really pressuring him to defend Philadelphia. And some of those European countries, including France and Spain, were expecting the Washington's army to make a, a full defense of the nation's capital. And if he didn't, um, they, they might have shied away from ever recognizing us and helping us. So uh, Brandywine was very important, but uh, Washington did not have the proper information. Uh, the British had a better army, better. They had some loyalists were there that were really good guiding them around. So on the morning of September the 11th, that uh, everything was in line for, for a British victory, which took place, and that also in that British or in the American army on Washington's staff was Lafayette. And as I tell people, you look at the early morning of September 11th, 1777, hardly anybody knew Lafayette. Lafayette was another European officer in Washington's staff. He did not have command. The other generals really, you know, didn't think highly of him because they had been fighting with Lafayette, or with Washington for more than a year. And Lafayette comes in, doesn't speak a whole lot of English, and all of a sudden outranks him. So you, there you had just a young European staff officer on, on Washington's staff when the day started. Uh, as a staff officer, is there any indication of what his duties were? Yeah, he, he was, uh, and uh, Alexander Hamilton was on the staff. He was a staff officer, a guy named Pickering, and a few others. What he did when Washington had orders, he'd go find the general and deliver them. Um, you know, he would keep track of letters. He would write, he probably didn't, but some of the other staff writers. He would do those duties. Uh, he would be with Washington in case he needed something. And it looks like he, he was right. And Lafayette says in his memoirs that he was uh, spent the morning with riding with Washington as he inspected the, the defenses and hoping that the British would cross that river. Now, Washington had been defeated in uh, Long Island through a flanking maneuver by Howe. Yes. Well, should he have been better prepared for this at Brandywine? Yeah, he knew, of course, he couldn't forget what happened in Long Island and sometimes called the Battle of Brooklyn. But it was a major defeat where Howe did outflank him. And he knew this was a possibility and he talked about it. And there's one notation, one of his aides around noon where Washington got very cross and very angry and said, why can't somebody tell me where the enemy is? He knew it was out there. He had scouts out there. Um, when the reports were sent back from the scouts, there was a, a great problem because they weren't dated when the observation took place and exactly where the observation took place. So they said, I'm out here in the vicinity of Kenneth Square and I don't see anything. Then you get another report where the British is sighted. Another report say, nope, there's nothing here. So it was really hard to put them together. So um, it was misinformation or at least information. It, was, it couldn't be used to piece together what was happening with the British. And uh, what was happening, what was really going on, uh, early in the morning, uh, Cornwallis and, and Hal took a little bit more than half of their, their troops, probably about 70,000 troops left Kennett Square and started a 17-mile march to outflank Washington. The other little less than half of the uh, army under General Kneiphausen, the Hessian general, was told to march straight out to Brandywine and make Washington think you have the whole army there. And when you hear us attack in the back, you attack across the Brandywine, we'll catch him in a vice, and that'll be the end of Washington's army. 
great plan, and it almost worked. A couple of the British Army officers uh, wrote later in their journals that they had another hour or two of daylight. There wouldn't have been a Washington's army left that day on September 11th. So the Battle of Brandywine is that moment when Lafayette goes from being kind of an unknown, untested French officer to being on his road to being an American hero. Yes. What I, was his day like? What happened? He, he was there um, in the morning again with uh, Washington, expecting the defense, doing whatever Washington told him. And uh, early in the afternoon, uh, word came that, indeed, uh, Howe and Cornwallis had outflanked them. They're on Osborne Hill, which is just north of uh, the Brandywine, uh, the Birmingham Meeting House, and he was about ready to get encircled. Washington immediately sent his uh, General Sullivan, who had the right flank, to bend it around to get between the rest of the army and, and the British, and they were up trying to get, get in line. They were having trouble. The British were starting to attack. It was chaos, and Lafayette went up to Washington and said, Sir, I need to go help your troops. Give me permission. And Washington needed all the help he could at that point. And he told Lafayette to go. Lafayette got a couple of his staff officers, including an officer named Jamet, G-I-M-A-T. I'm never sure if I pronounce his name right. Um, they rushed up to Birmingham Hill, um, got, found General Conway's brigade, which was forming to the uh, west of the uh, Birmingham Meeting House. They were having trouble forming. They were starting to break. Lafayette, unlike a number of officers who just stay on their horse and tell them what to do, he jumped off his horse and tried to line up the, the troops, try to get them in line, try to get this uh, bayonet charge, and he was just doing whatever he could to help. As the British were coming within, you know, 100 yards, 50 yards, kept getting closer, coming off the Osborne Hill up to Birmingham Hill, and he shot in the left leg. It goes right through his calf. Um, at first, Lafayette didn't know what was going on. Jamet saw it, saw the blood coming out of his boot in, in, onto the ground and said, you're wounded. We need to get you out of there. Uh, Jamet and others put him on his horse and took him back to the wood line uh, and back of Birmingham Hill there. Uh, today there's a place called Wiley Road that runs in back of that field, and then there's a wood line. And I think most people believe he was taken back into that woods. Uh, one of the American military uh, doctors found him, did some initial patching of him, and helped him on his way, and he made his way back to Chester that night. Uh, interesting, as you're doing research, you got to look at the little folklores. That, and there's a great tree back on, on the brand now at Washington Headquarters Park, and uh, people say, yep, that's where he was taken to be treated. Of course, that's nonsense because the British had hold of that at that point. You know, he was taken straight to Chester, and some people said, no, he was treated at Birmingham Meeting House. Again, that was in British hands. No, he was put on the road and... Uh, take him back to, to Chester. And along the way, he was again trying to help, trying to keep order of the retreat and, um, you know, doing what he could. How did his performance at that battle change the way Washington and Congress and others saw him? I, th I think it showed that he was just not a political general from Europe out there to make a name for himself and put a few you know, points on the resume and get a lot of money. He served. He, he did not request any salary. He was not paid. He was a pure volunteer. 
So you have, he was a volunteer, he was willing to fight, he shed his blood, and he did what he could, what a good officer could, and I don't think there was any argument that this was a dedicated young man who really wanted to see us win his freedom. So all of a sudden he was getting, you know, the respect from the men and his fellow officers, and uh, Washington knew he was not going to, you know, run away in the face of fire. And um, I, also he was very likable. He made friends wherever he went. So I, I think you put all these things together, and at Brandywine, that was really the first step to him becoming an American hero, a hero that we needed to win our freedom. So d did that experience uh, help him get the command that he wanted? Yes, uh, eventually he uh, was taken from Chester. He has a little bit of humor, and I, I used a lot of his memoir um, that he wrote, and uh, it was later added to a little bit by some of his family member. But he talked about being at Chester that night, and. Uh, he still needed some medical treatment, and he went into this little uh, house, and he was putting on the kitchen table, waiting for the doctor to come in to patch him up a little bit more. And, and some of his fellow officers came in after the hard day of fighting, and he just looks at him and says, "I know you're hungry. I hope you don't think I'm dinner." As he was laying on the, you know, laying on the kitchen table, waiting to be patched up, and everybody kind of chuckled. But he, he had that little bit of humor in him that, that you know, it kind of make people laugh. Um, he was taken to uh, Philadelphia for a day, and then um, taken, uh, made his way, and with some help, some influential friends, to Bethlehem and where he spent the next couple months being treated and recovering before he made his way back to where he really wanted to come back and fight with Washington and probably left before he was fully healed. But uh, he made it back to Washington before they got to Valley Forge. And that's when little bit by little bit, Washington gave him a little bit of a command or a little bit more duties and um, just kept on being added to as he went. Yeah, at one point he was assigned to participate in a reconnaissance mission with General Nathaniel Green. Uh, what was his role during that mission? Um, yeah, he, he he had two things. He had that reconnaissance mission where he had charge of some troops, and the first really full one was a little bit after that at Barron Hill, where he was going to scout. And this was after um, a little bit later in that winter, where he wanted Washington wanted to make sure what. Uh, General Howe was doing with troops, and he got some uh, troops to go get some intelligence. He was supposed to go away two days, and, and Washington told him, whatever you do, uh, move your campsite each night, because the British will find out who you are, where you are. And um, he uh, did not follow the lead, but uh, he made a miraculous escape. And uh, some of the reviews were, wow, what a, what a great young general this is. And some of the other reviews were, man, what a lucky kid this was. You know, it was just luck that he, he kind of escaped. But he kind of built and built and built upon this. And, uh, of course, we had the great non-invasion of Canada in between, which I always thought, what? It just showed what kind of astute young man this was that he could see he was being used that winter as a political pawn by some of George Washington's enemies. And, and Lafayette was just a staunch report, a supporter of General Washington all the way through, and Washington needed uh, some of that support by his staff. 
um, that there were several people in the in the army. General Gates thought he ought to be in charge. Um, Conway, who Lafayette fought with at Brandywine, also sided with Gates. And through the political process, there was something that was formed called the War Board, which Conway and Gates kind of ran. And they were going to make the, the military decisions for, for the Congress. And they know to, they had to, they wanted to get rid of Washington and if they could uh, lessen Lafayette's impact, because he was getting a lot of good reviews after Brandywine and a lot of good press and people were paying attention to him. They thought if they could diminish Lafayette, then they could diminish Washington. So uh, they came up with the idea of the war board that uh, they were going to invade Canada. And who else better to invade Canada than a Frenchman, Lafayette, and he thought they would go for it because then they could get back the French possessions in Canada and gave orders to Lafayette to, to do so. Uh, Lafayette balked at the orders at first. He was also going to have an independent command and uh, report to Washington. He said, nope, I'm staying under Washington's campaign. Uh, direction. Um, <clears throat> he wrote, he could tell this was a disaster on its way. He wrote back to his father-in-law and, and to the king. He thought he was in a better position that he thinks he's being used. He wrote to his friends in Congress, this is a really bad idea. Washington said, you got to go, it's an order, but you, as your commander, you got to, they have to tell you what support they're going to give you, men, money, whatever. He went to York, Got it. He was told so much money, so much men, and go to the middle of New York State and launch your uh, invasion of Canada. Well, if you really think about it, in January in 1778, are you really going to invade Canada in the middle of this horrendous winter and be successful? Um, of course, everybody thought he was going to fail, and when he got to New York State, the, the American officers there just basically says, you're nuts. It never worked. Nobody will ever do this. And there was no men, uh, not the men that was promised, no money. And eventually the war board caved and uh, Lafayette came off with honor and Washington was really supported even more. Now, at some point, he returns to France after being in America for a while. Was he perceived differently? Had he proven himself in a different way on his return to France? Yep. Um, he, he was there through Valley Forge. He was with von Steuben that really helped uh, engage and, and train the Americans. Um, he fought in a couple battles uh, through New Jersey. Again, kind of uh, Monmouth Courthouse was, was the big one, one of Washington's big victories. He played a great part there. And at the end of the year, he asked to go back uh, to France. And he was seen as a, you know, an up-and-coming officer in America, a lot of good press. They were writing about him back in France. So he was in pretty good setting for himself when he went back. But again, what is, and he had never received a reply from his wife. So he didn't know what she was thinking. She had received some of his letters and he didn't know if he was going to, again, be thrown in the dungeon or if his wife was going to kick him out. But his wife, was Adrian, was very proud of him and welcomed him. And, and it was like, he, you know, he, he was you know, a hero. The king was astute enough that he could use Lafayette's new glory for himself, welcoming him back to, to the country. But, of course, Lafayette had to be punished because he had violated a direct order of the king by fleeing. So um, the, the 
great punishment that he gave him was uh, basically a week of home confinement in his chateau. So it was, I don't know if he had to have a monitoring on, a device on his ankle or not, but he, uh, he got to spend a, a week at home under confinement. So it was like you no know, a slap on the wrist of even that. So the king was, was okay with it. And he spent that winter really promoting the United States, asking for the king to give, give us more support. Um, working with Franklin, devising these plans to invade England or uh, cause problems with them, and he, all these letter writings, and he was very much becoming an agent for the United States. Um, when the next season rolled around to, to fight, uh, Lafayette was sent back uh, by the king and also gave him the words that we're going to supply ships and men to the United States and you're going to be the one that tells Washington they're on his way. Um, there was some debate, was he a French officer at that point or an American officer? And Lafayette made no doubt that he was an American officer as he showed up to the king to bid him goodbye in his American officer's uniform. So indeed, he was an American and he came back to fight. So when he came back to fight, he spent a lot of time in Virginia. Uh, what, what were his duties there? What, what did Washington assign him to do? Um, when he came back, of course, Washington was really elated that he was getting all this help from the French, and uh, shortly he was going to New England to uh, meet with some of the new French generals and took Lafayette around. And Lafayette, always when there was an issue with the French, Lafayette was go in and smooth it out. It great help that way. Um, during this trip, uh, they stopped by West Point and stopped to see Benedict Arnold and said, we'll be back on the way back and we'll talk about the defense. And of course, uh, on the way back was the day that Arnold was discovered as, as giving the, trying to turn over West Point to the British, you know, probably the greatest traitor in American history. Um, that ties in with the, what Lafayette was told to do in, in Virginia. The South was having problems. Uh, you know, we lost some battles down there. Uh, Washington sent Nathaniel Green to the South to help shore it up. And he decided to send Lafayette to Virginia to, to do the same thing, to harass Cornwallis's army and to find Benedict Arnold. And the word was, don't worry about Benedict Arnold and giving him a trial. If you find him, just hang him on the spot. He's a traitor. Everybody was so upset with him, of course, and just so mad, uh, including Hamilton, who, who was there also with Lafayette in Washington when the deception was, was found out. Lafayette did not have a big force. He only had like a thousand men, so not very much. Uh, General Wayne from Pennsylvania was supposed to recruit some more men and go down and join him. Wayne had a horrendous problem recruiting anybody. He was months late. Uh, there was some local militia that kind of joined Lafayette, but he was pretty much outmanned uh, during uh, uh, late in 1780 into 1781 when he was down there. He did what he was told, and he was told not to engage the British head-on because the British would have just wiped him up. And it was General Cornwallis, a veteran 
British general that opposed him. So he did what he was told. He kind of made as much trouble, chased him around. And, and from all the chasing, I think Cornwallis started to lose a lot of his men's supplies. And it wasn't like their supply base was around the corner. It was back in London. So they, they needed some reinforcements and, and, and everything. And towards the um, end of the middle of that summer, he started to make his way back to the Atlantic coast. And what he thought, you know, it was very much clear and, and under normal circumstances what had happened that the British Navy, one of the most powerful ones in the world, would sail from New York, pick him up and take him back to New York City with General Clinton and they would try another uh, you know, movement and get some more military plans to defeat us. Lafayette's all was gone. He let Washington know, you know, we have a chance to encircle them here, get down here, bring the French Navy, bring the French Army. And he, this correspondent went, uh, went on. And Washington did not respond to Lafayette because he was afraid some of those messages might be intercepted and they, the British would learn uh, their plans. So there were spies all over the place in the American Revolution. Um, so Lafayette came, kept it to himself along with the French general Rochambeau, and they started to come down towards uh, Virginia. They also uh, talked to the Admiral uh, de Grassi, uh, the French admiral who had a, a big French fleet in the Indies to come up. And one of the battles that really kind of turned Yorktown is de Grassi's fleet defeated the French or the British fleet. And the British fleet went, headed back to New York for supplies and more ships to come down. But at that point, Cornwallis was in Yorktown, no evidence of escape. And Washington told Lafayette, don't let him out. Don't you dare let him get to inland. Keep him there at, at the shore, which is indeed what Lafayette did. De Grassi had uh, some French uh, Marines with him that joined Lafayette, and they kept him hemmed in until Washington and um, the other French troops. And after a short siege, Cornwallis uh, surrendered in the middle of October of 1781, a great surrender people have talked about and, and kind of pictured where the British came out and they were playing the world turned upside down. And the, uh, Cornwallis wouldn't even show up. He was so humiliated. He was trying to give his second in command the the saber to turn over, and they wanted to turn it over to the French, and, and Lafayette said, no, you turn it over to, to the American troops, we beat you. Now, there's a lot in this book that we could continue talking about, but before we... For hours. Out, yeah. <laughs> but before we run out of time, I do yeah. want to talk about his experiences during the French Revolution. Sure. And now, now he, he knew the king and was aware of the, and, you know, uh, was part of the court in some fashion, but he was also uh, this officer, as we've been talking about during the American Revolution. Uh, how did that work for him with uh, his relationship with the French revolutionaries? When he came back to France, and um, there, there was this tension, of course, in France, they wanted their freedom too, individuals, and they weren't happy with the king and Marie Antoinette. And um, Lafayette very much said, look, we need to have American style of freedom here. It, it, it works, and, and everybody deserves to be free and have a voice in government, uh, which sounds nice, except if you were the king, and the king, that would mean the king giving up powers, and he didn't want to, so he was adamant against this. And you would think that Lafayette would resonate with the, 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 the many of the French residents. 
but they didn't trust him totally because he was a member of royalty, or not royalty, but the king's court. So he was not trusted by one side and he was not liked by the other side because what he advocated. And the French Revolution, and I just kind of touched on the highlights that dealt with Lafayette because you could go on for books and books and books on the French Revolution and how bad it was and who was in control. But um, Lafayette tried to wind his way through, uh, but really at times was targeted and almost died a couple times. And he did did what he could to survive. Um, As I said, his wife's... uh, family ended up in prison and guillotined. His wife was in prison for a while. He had led some troops trying to capture the king and was captured by the king's supporters and kept in a prison outside of France, but right outside in the Germany region for a while. And when actually a future president, Monroe, who knew Lafayette from the American Revolution, helped get uh, his wife out of prison, and she and some of the family uh, went to stay with Lafayette until he was released, and they all suffered health problems. Right before that, they sent his son, George Washington Lafayette, to stay with George Washington here during the French Revolution to, to keep him safe. So he ran into a lot of problems. He finally got out of prison, but at first wasn't allowed back to France when a guy named Napoleon came to power. And Napoleon wanted to use Lafayette and Lafayette's name. And Lafayette was not a big supporter of Napoleon, but took the you know, get out of jail free card to, to come. And that's how he actually managed to come back to, to France. So he lost even more of his money, his possessions. His wife eventually died not soon after, from the, partially from the disease and the suffering that, that she suffered. So, you know, he was, he was getting older. He was in and out of French politics and um, not, not an easy life, but he was making a little bit of a comeback. Now, we only have a few minutes left, but uh, he, he does return to the United States uh, and goes on a tour uh, how did that come about? Um, Monroe, when he was president, thought we owed Lafayette something. Also was coming up on the 50th anniversary of our freedom. And so he uh, talked Congress that let's invite him back and be the American guest. The King of France at that time didn't want him to come again because he thought Lafayette would come over here and we'd band together and, and invade him, which was not the idea. Um, so he was a nation's guest. He came in August of 1824 and was supposed to stay for four months. And every, every place he went, parades, uh, dinners, speeches, and this was day after day. And he went from New York to New England and back and Philadelphia and back to D.C. And, and it was just, you, you can't imagine, can you imagine anybody today commanding that for that amount of time? Well, Lafayette stayed because he was asked to stay. He was told every state in the Union wanted him to come visit. So he ended up here 13 months. And it was just like every day and people just turned out and it was just so grateful what he did for American freedom. Um, The one story that his secretary was with him kind of summed it up and it was not one of the formal affairs. He had a stop outside of Portsmouth, Virginia and a young, uh, it was a 
unscheduled stop, and there was a tavern owner who said, do you have time to see my son and my wife? And he, Lafayette said yes. And the son just went up and put his hand on Lafayette's hand and said, thank you. Thank you for our freedom. It was a great story. If there's, looking back today, if, if, if you could uh, explain to people in just, say, one idea about why Lafayette was significant, what would you say? I think it was his faith in freedom, his undying loyalty, his exuberism, and his caring for everybody, not only us, but everybody. Well, we've been speaking with Bruce Mowdy. He is the author of Lafayette at Brandywine, The Making of an American Hero. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.